Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Buffalo Project, as I understand it, is a group of high-ranking business leaders from Alberta and Saskatchewan. And what they're working on is a better deal for Western Canada within Confederation. They are Federalists. However, again, as I understand it, at the same time, members of the Buffalo Project are not unaware of the growing unease in Western Canada. And uh, the chairman of the Buffalo Project, Alice Howe, has said, the West faces an existential moment in Confederation. If another election cycle goes by with the West being demonized or ignored, Confederation itself is at risk. Mr. Howe joins us on the Roy Green Show. Um, let's do this on a first-name basis. Dallas, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for having us on to talk about this. Yeah, it's, it's so important. You know, we, we spent decades talking about Quebec's unhappiness within Confederation, which twice has taken us to the brink of a Quebec referendum on separation. In 1995, the last one, it was, I think, two or three point something or other in the percentages game um, that that safe, saved Confederation from Quebec leaving. There are now people years later who are saying, well, it would have been better if it had gone the other way. But we are where we are. I just gave a little bit of a, as I understand it, um, description of what the Buffalo Project is. But can you just expand on that for us, please, a little bit? Tell us what it is when it was created, and why? Sure, you did a pretty good job of summarizing it, but back in uh, 2017 and going into 2018, uh, Brad Wall announced that he was uh, leaving politics, and that was uh, a catalyst for me that I thought that was terrible, that uh, here was a respected voice, not only in the West, but across Canada, and he was going to be leaving politics. So that started a discussion, with Brad Wall and others, and we ended up taking the name Buffalo Project. Uh, Brad Wall indicated that, uh, you know, if we we're going to do this, we should be calling it the Buffalo Project because that's what Alberta and Saskatchewan should have been called in 1905, which was not allowed to happen by the central government. So that was really the origin of it. And as time went on, uh, it was a small group of uh, business people in Alberta and Saskatchewan got together and created, uh, as you said, something that's looking for a new fair deal for the West in Confederation. And this is not a new problem. It's been going on for over 100 years, and it seems like it ebbs and flows. But uh, at this point, uh, again, there seems to be a growing anger and a demand for change. So that was the basis of it, organized. And uh, the good news and the bad news is that it was relatively easy to do which was the good news 
the bad news was it was because people were so unhappy and disillusioned and all of that that they were really searching for something that they could get involved in to once and for all try and solve this problem of Western alienation. So that's all the basis of how uh, it got started. And really, it's, it's summing it up is that we're just looking for a new deal for the West that's fair and doesn't come out as anti-oil and the, all the equalization issues of unfairness and piling on carbon taxes. And it just seems the list goes on and on, and we just need this new deal. And so what Buffalo is trying to do is be a voice to educate and communicate and really push for action on these things to be done. Okay, and you are all highly respected business experts, business leaders. You were the former chairman of the Potash Corporation, so we should tell tell our listeners that. So now one of the things that you're doing, and you're looking very closely at the leadership race that is underway for the Conservative Party of Canada. Yesterday we spoke with uh, Pierre, Pierre Polyev, who we heard at the beginning of the, uh, the hour, uh, a clip from the interview, Mr. Polyev talking about the decision made by the Alberta Court of Appeal concerning this, I'm still calling it Bill, Bill C-69, because that's what it is. Um, can, can you tell us, please, how this grading process is, is going on, and how do you, how does the Buffalo Project, how are you grading the individual candidates? What, uh, who's doing well, who's doing not so well? Okay. Well, uh, we thought this was a good idea because, first of all, we're nonpartisan, but a lot of our supporters are members of the Conservative Party, so there's a there's a real interest in this leadership. And leadership is really important because this ultimately or potentially this could be uh, picking the next Prime Minister of Canada. So it's really important. And Canadians, including Westerners, are now preoccupied trying to rebuild their lives after COVID and now uh, rapid inflation, all these other things. So we thought it'd be worthwhile to do as simple as possible assessment from the lens of Western Canada. What what does it mean for the West in terms of what these leaders are saying and what they're committed to? So that gave us a basis to basically a report card where we took four issues that were important to the West and then we tried to have our researchers find out where do the candidates sit on these issues. And on the basis of that, we went through and did a simple uh, school grading system on each of the uh, six individuals that have put their names up. So that's kind of the basis of it and why we're doing it. Okay, can you give us the grades that you've given the candidates? Okay, well, I can go through them quickly and sure. we can uh, dig down uh, uh, more deeply if you want. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Scott, yep. Scott Atchison, grade F. And again, uh, uh, reason there, he seems like a very nice fellow, but just unclear on Western policies that we were doing our grading on. Uh, Robin uh, Baber, uh, grade C, and he's really come up because he started out uh, not being very clear, but he's become very clear on things like scrapping equalizations and things like that. So he's moved from a F up to a C. Uh, Patrick Brown is a C minus. And again, uh, there's information on a plan for Western Canada that's on his uh, website called uh, fighterleaderwinner.ca that uh, you can go and check further. But his policies are strong and they're welcome. The issue is with uh, Brown that uh, he was against the carbon tax while running for Ontario PC leader, 
only confirm after he won the leadership that he would implement a carbon tax. So there's really a trust issue there that's uh, causing his grade to pull down in terms of, you know, what what really is his past actions and how they might impact. Jean Charest gets a C minus, and that was upgraded from a D minus to a C minus as he came out and more clearly articulated uh, uh, items like moving to more private health care options and repealing Bill C-69 and C-48, and on discussions of excluding non-renewable resources from equalization formula and canceling carbon tax. But as we all know, he's a very smart, seasoned politician, and uh, with just some of that history, there's a there's a issue there that, you know, talk is cheap, but uh, we've graded him uh, as we have because there is some risk of just the follow-through on these issues. Uh, Leslin Lewis, uh, graded B, uh, seems very committed to Western Canada, pro-energy, repeal BC, C69, C48. And I guess we would like to hear more of what her thoughts are on equalization and uh, some other aspects, but uh, she's been given a B. And then Pierre Polyev has given a grade A, and again, uh, pretty clear. I don't think anyone has any problem seeing where he stands on any issue. And he comes out very strong on uh, the Western Canadian issues of interest to us, uh, more private health care, pro-Canadian energy, uh, just the whole business that uh, resonates in Western Canada in terms of making Canada the freest nation on earth and things like that. So that gets him an A. Okay. So that's basically yeah. the rundown. Now, to be clear, this is an ongoing process, and uh, it's a it's a long. We're not in a sprint here; it's a marathon. This is a four month process. It, uh, you know, we can pick a government in thirty days, but it looks like it takes six months to pick a leader of a party. <laughs> in any event, uh, we'll be watching this, and uh, hopefully, as more information comes out, and we invite. Uh, input from the candidates will uh, go through this grading process. Dallas, is Confederation at risk already? I think so, Roy. You know, it's, this is an old problem, and it's really hard to pull the emotion out of it. It's been ongoing for 117 years. But right now, and I guess people always feel things are different, but right now it does feel different because pre-COVID, when our polling and all of that would show there was a high anger level developing in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and Alberta and Saskatchewan think exactly alike in the polling. It's interesting to see that. And and then uh, COVID came along, and really the fear overtook everything, and, and so it was all kind of put on pause. But the latest information we have is that anger is back, and it's really in spades now because it's been fed more by issues now about freedom and government overreach and things that weren't prevalent uh, in, in people's minds uh, pre-COVID. So I think there is a time now where we're really at great risk. And just look at look at what goes on. We have a referendum in Alberta, which is a people speaking, and there's no response from the federal government to take the, any serious consideration about that. And we have letters written by premiers Kenny and Moe and efforts taken and all of that. And from every, anything I can understand, they're, they're ignored or, or, uh, or pushed off or whatever. We now have a Supreme Court of Alberta 
reaching a decision that's that's at the governance justice level of the country. Again, it seems like the first reaction is we'll fight it by the federal government. So I think at all levels we're in we're in a space now where I think it is it is dangerous because no longer can I even the conservative party think of the Western vote being captive that it has nowhere else to go and all of that. I think it's just an important time a critical time in our country where, you know, the Westerners aren't asking for special treatment or anything like that. It's just we've moved from a period of almost indifference or accepting what the West contributed to a punishment time. And and really that, that punishment for the things that Westerners do and believe in and all that really has to stop. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking strongly about it and it's really hard to separate the emotion but I think when you get down to it, there are so many facts of what's going on now that just support the fact that there's just got to be the recognition of the West needing a do, new deal. And and it's reasonable that all it wants is fairness. Yeah, so sorry, I'm hearing... For, sorry for going into a bit of a... No, it's okay. It's okay. We have about a minute left. What I'm hearing you say <laughs> is essentially, I mean, I'm grabbing a line from a movie here, Network, where the news anchor says, I've had enough... And I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. I'm hearing that from Western Canada. And it's not just now. I've been hearing that on this program from Western Canada for several years. And it hasn't been taken seriously. And I would, I would advise this federal government, I would advise everybody in this country, if you are a federalist, take very seriously what's coming out of Western Canada, what Mr. Howe is saying, because there's fatigue. There is fatigue. Um, are you hopeful that... Do you have any hope? In, do you have any, we have 20 seconds here. Uh, Dallas, I wish we had more. Do you have any, any hope for Trudeau doing the right thing? You know, I think, again, uh, politicians are, are very pragmatic. And if, if, they're at, if it would just sink in that this is a serious moment and it's going to be part of his legacy in terms of how this is navigated through, you know, there's always hope. I'm always hopeful, okay. and I've known a lot of politicians, and they, sometimes if there's enough pressure, they'll do the right thing. Roxham Road has been talked a lot about in this country over the last number of years. And Roxham Road has been talked about because it's an illegal border crossing into Canada. And there have been calls on the federal government to uh, either close Roxham Road or to enforce law, and there's been conflict and there's been contradiction and there have been challenges and now the premier of quebec has said to the federal government he wants roxham road the illegal border crossing into canada into quebec closed francois legault argues many of those who enter the province through roxham road are not real refugees so it's going to be interesting to find out how the federal government responds to the Premier of Quebec on this particular issue. And in Quebec, there's another piece of legislation making its way through the legislature, which you may not be aware of. It's called Bill 96, and it's further uh, promotion of the French language to the exclusion of the English language. This particular piece of legislation, as I understand it, and our guest will clarify, wants a doctor and a patient, whether or not... French is their first language, or whether they're or not, they're comfortable in French. They want a doctor and a patient, ideally, to communicate in French. If if you're sick and you can't explain how you what, what's wrong with you, 
in the language that's not your first language. Now the doctor and you have to communicate in the language that's not your first language. Julius Gray is one of Quebec's foremost civil rights lawyers, and he's a senior partner at Gray Casgrain Law Firm in Montreal. Julius, thank you very much for coming on the program. Roxham Road has been the... It's been a subject of national debate as an illegal entry point into this country with some organizations arguing no one is illegal, and that then pulls the government into debate. How is Roxham Road, before we talk about Mr. Legault, how is Roxham Road generally viewed in Quebec? Well, it depends by whom. I don't think it's uh, a, a universal view. What I would say logically is that we can't open our borders totally. I mean, if we could, if we did... We wouldn't have the infrastructure, the structure, the schools, the hospitals, and so on. So obviously there is some control over immigration. On the other hand, I do suspect that the Quebec government has other reasons. There's a sort of not, no great love for immigrants or immigration, and they want to control everything and make sure it's the ones they've chosen. And so the reason is not the problem that there are so many people coming in that they will... Uh, we will run out of schools or hospitals, but rather uh, that they're not that uh, gung-ho about immigration. So this is what you hear Mr. Legault saying when he says Roxham Road has to be closed. Sorry? This is what I see when I observe the present Quebec government. It is uh, definitely not a pro-immigrant government. So how do you expect the federal government to respond? Mr. Trudeau sometimes, and other prime ministers, have had a different response to a demand from a Quebec premier that they might have to a premier from another province. Well, certainly in the last year, to my great chagrin and my disappointment, Mr. Trudeau has been completely supine on the issue of Bill 96. He's supported Quebec on a law which is basically divides citizens into categories and, as you mentioned before, uh, tends to, to encourage services in French only. So Mr. Trudeau seems to be uh, unable to stand up to Quebec. It's uh, a rather bizarre situation because if ever there's been a law that has no merit to recommend it, it's Bill 96, and yet uh, all politicians, federal politicians, provincial politicians, everybody's afraid to uh, show it for what it is. So tell us, please, uh, because Bill 96 isn't Bill 21. That's that's the different one. Tell us, please, what it is that Bill 96, in fact, if it's passed, and I suspect it will be, if it's passed, what will it it mean to Quebecers? Well, it would mean a further narrowing of the scope. It's very discriminatory against Frankfurt. In fact, it tries to prevent Francophone Quebecers from going to English colleges, to discourage them ultimately from going to McGill or Concordia. It uh, uh, tries to prevent bilingual Francophone Quebecers from having, uh, from being able to use the fact that their English is good on their applications. But basically, it's a narrow, restrictive law, which uh, uh, assumes that French is in danger, which is very questionable. Uh, it's, not, it's not the law that protects French. That was Bill 101, and there was, it had to be done. I mean, you can't have freedom of choice, and you uh, can't, uh, and French has to be the official language, but it already is. This new law is simply an, an attempt to discourage uh, the minority and the bilingual francophones, 
and to try to make certain that everything runs in French only. But in addition, in addition, it contains, uh, first of all, the notwithstanding clause, so you can't challenge it under the Charter, and also violations of civil liberties that are mind-boggling. The Office de la langue française, the uh, enforcement, language enforcement uh, uh, bureaucracy, is going to have the power to go into any business, look into inside anybody's phone, anybody's computer, uh, to do anything that a police cannot do when they're investigating a murder. Uh, it's uh, uh, making French the one and only value that doesn't merit any sort of charter supervision. It is quite shocking. And yet the federal government has not come out and said, while we support having French as the official language of Quebec, and while we recognize that immigrants have to go to French schools, this law goes much too far. So the Office de la Ligue Française can go into any business, any entity, and go through private information or confidential information without obtaining any warrant or any agreement from any court that they may do that. They just go in and they say, we're here, open it up. that includes hospitals, by the way. So think about all the confidentiality issues. They can go into hospitals. Uh, They can go into doctor's offices, presumably. And, of course, they can go into your computers, which may have other things than just language use. So from a tax point of view, it's going to be a major breach of confidentiality. It's just a, uh, uh, as I said, it's mind-boggling. It's 1984. And nobody, very few people have spoken out against it simply because Quebec gets so angry. There are now some journalists on the French side who are beginning to realize just how far they've gone. But initially, for instance, I could get published. In fact, I could get a headline in the Gazette, but I could not get criticism of this law into the French press. Now it's a little easier, and certainly on the French radio, they have dis- I have been able to discuss it. But I think most people uh, on uh, uh, still assume that you know it's a we are, we're in a great democracy and laws passed and uh, the government insists nobody's going to be injured by it. That's false. All sorts of people, especially francophone Texas, are going to be injured by it. What can be said safely is that nobody's going to benefit from it. There will be no winners, only losers. And four years later, when it another election campaign looms, and when everybody realizes they've gained nothing from it, the uh, nationalists are going to say, we need something more. We didn't get enough that time. Let's get something else now. And this is the dynamic when people don't stand up to laws of this sort. The big losers, I think, are francophones. Uh, But uh, the anglophones are losing too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Dan McTagg is the president and founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You know that gas prices 
are hitting records, and we're still buying, by some estimates, over half a million barrels of foreign oil from arguably questionable sources daily for Canada, while our own supply of oil is not exported to a world in waiting and deemed not good for us either. So, Dan, let's uh, let's talk about this issue of um, what it's costing. What is gasoline? What's the price of gasoline today in the cities that we broadcast in? Uh, well, let's start with Vancouver, two thirty-three point nine. Uh, yeah, you heard that right, Toronto and <laughs> Edmonton, and uh, yeah, Edmonton, a buck sixty-eight, buck sixty-seven, uh, Calgary, buck sixty, buck seventy-one, buck seventy-two. And um, some of that is because James, because uh, because the premier. premier. Yeah, Jason Kennedy reduced the uh, taxes. Yeah, plus GSC, so 13.6. So, yeah, and of course, uh, they don't have all sorts of taxes that Vancouver has. Remember, Vancouver has two, as does BC, two carbon taxes. That's why most of the interior is also well over $2.05, $2.10 a liter. That uh, Victoria, is regular, yes. Yeah, that's regular. regular. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, you like carbon taxes. You don't mind having one or two. Um, you want to end... Uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels. You want to block pipelines. There's a there's a cost to that. Now, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, all in the 178, 179, 187 range. Um, Ontario. Uh, this story, of course, uh, breaking all time records again. So here in Toronto, uh, two dollars and eight point nine cents a liter. Uh, you and I talked about this a week or so ago. Two ten by May two four weekend. Looks like uh, that only won't, won't just be hit. It'll likely be exceeded. Montreal two fifteen point nine, almost two sixteen regular. Maritimes uh, about to see some pretty big shakeups overnight. Uh, I think uh, we'll see two twenty three in Newfoundland uh, by no later than this time tomorrow night. Wow, man, oh man, that's um, you yeah, know what? Crazy. A buck eighty starts to sound like a deal. Yeah, and and Roy, the average price in Canada is now eighty five cents a liter more expensive than it was this time last year. So. You know, places like Toronto, you were paying a dollar twenty-eight. Uh, you're now paying two hundred eight. So, you know, you're you're at a you're at a uh, really a, a point in which people have to start to wonder why a country with the third largest provable reserves in the world, no problems with our refineries, is running into this kind of trouble. And uh, I mean, the answers are pretty simple because we've talked about this on on this very show for the past several years, and it's gone completely. Uh, people have been catatomic about this, but uh, I think no longer because it's, you know, when you mess around with energy affordability, you start driving up the cost of living beyond people's ability to pay. People can't go out and get, you know, compensation, can't raise the price uh, uh, which they're operating at. They can't go to their employee employer and ask for more money. Uh, we're going to see a significant decline in the standard of living and prosperity that Canadians have many, in many respects taken for granted. So, Dan, what I will hear, and you hear all the time, is if you reduce the carbon tax, it really won't make much of a difference. And the reason the gasoline prices are where they are is because of the world reality got nothing to do with any domestic policy. Yeah, well, a country with the third largest provable reserves that killed 3 million barrels in oil that the world desperately needs today could have dropped oil prices 30 bucks a barrel. That's point number one. So, yeah, it is a global issue. Canada's inability to bring its oil to uh, global markets uh, is on Canada. It's not a global thing. Second of all, that would have increased the value of the Canadian dollar. 
that uh, would have seen us come back to parity between those two actions alone. Had we not been so damn short-sighted in killing pipelines and trying to be trendy and woke, we would have been, we'd be saving 60 to 70 cents a litre right now. And then, of course, the carbon tax. Yeah, you may not think much of it. In a province like mine in Ontario, it's rising at a rate that's faster than the rate of inflation, 12.5 cents a litre with HSD in the past 25 months since it's been implemented. So, yeah, no, uh, it's a package policy. You've gone after, regulated, choked off, encouraged Mark Carney's uh, friends of the prime ministers and others to try to stop investment in oil and gas. And now you wonder why the Canadian dollar is weak. You wonder why no one wants to buy into the Canadian uh, currency. And you kind of wonder why prices are going through the roof. We were the solution. We have now signed up to become very much a part of the problem. And we still have a minister of environment, a minister of natural resources, and a prime minister that keep talking this nonsense narrative about net zero, which is crazy. It will never be achieved, not without net poverty. Uh, they talk about the just transition, the great reset. This is, you know, code word uh, for false prophets who've taken us down this very, very dark and very desperately painful path. And it's time for them to take their narrative and pack up and go. And if they don't want to, then the Canadians have every right to say, look, these prices are where they are because we have voted NDP and Liberal and Green in this country, and we have taken the idea that somehow we're bad, uh, that we're not producing clean energy, and therefore we should be ashamed of ourselves. There is a massive cost to that, and that cost is not going to be borne by Canadians who can least afford it. Those I are had the a conversation things. with Elizabeth May a few years ago on the air, um, Green Party member of Parliament, and I said, you know what, yep. Elizabeth, most countries, most people in most countries would consider themselves blessed if they had the natural resources resources that Canada has. And that's the truth of it. So um, let me ask you in, uh, we have a couple of minutes left. How much should we be paying for a liter of gasoline? How much? Well, if I were prime minister of this country and we didn't block pipelines, we'd be down to about, on a day like today, probably about $1.45 a liter. And I say that because I would kill the, obviously, the, the, the uh, cap-and-trade slash carbon tax. I would also get pipelines built in this country, not that I have that opportunity. Uh, and I would simply ask my friends in Quebec, if you're not interested in having pipelines, then perhaps uh, you ought to consider not having any pipeline at all and you know, uh, not have propane and not have oil and not have a refinery. Well, they're, down, they're, 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 they're cutting off their noses to spite their faces because they don't want yeah. liquid natural gas either. My God, uh, Europe is saying that they see this as transition fuel. They have had to concede that. What's wrong? Look, this is not the people of Quebec. You know, people that no, you live with. That. Boy, From no, the Montreal Economic the, Institute polling. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's really the, it's the grifters. It's the, it's the uh, activists. It's a group of uh, well-polished elite who don't give a damn for the public. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, 216 a liter should wake them up, but uh, not having enough diesel should do that. But look, I, I would build pipelines in this country. Uh, and I would tell you that, uh, you know, any other attempt at trying to stop or stifle our energy sector once the courts have made a decision would be treated as criminal. And these people would be prosecuted as the fullest letter of the law, including those who try to shut down the uh, Gulf of Gasoline Pipeline. So, final question then. If we decided to change course, and if suddenly it became inevitable for government to make changes because people had had enough, couldn't afford to, you know, live their lives. 
How quickly could Canada move the needle on getting our needed oil and gas to a waiting country, ours, and the world? Well, get the Keystone Pipeline, I'd rather the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline built. No more, no more fooling around. Get it through. It's, you know, uh, that would you know, provide the world 800,000 barrels it currently doesn't have. I would also, of course, move beyond uh, that and to suggest other alternatives. Churchill, um, using the Great Lakes, uh, uh, even perhaps working with uh, with other U.S. states to uh, to reconfigure, to get more refineries built, and to get more energy to the eastern part of this country, to the rest of the world. Right. Finally, I would energy rebates, Roy, which I did 20 years ago. We got to give the money back to the people. The government is making uh, is ripping people off with the the GST and HST. It, it's okay. a, it's an absolute ab- uh, abomination that needs to be changed. The International Energy Agency points out. I believe this is the number. Yeah. But by 2060, and that zero is supposed to be 2050, according to Mr. Trudeau, by 2060, the world is still going to be using 100 million barrels of oil per day. I think it's I've got that same, correctly. Yeah, same organization that last year said, stop making fossil fuels, stop producing uh, you know, any oil or natural gas. Uh, and they're not. Oil companies are making money because you're being told you can't make any more. So that's what they have. I found out earlier this hour that uh, David Milgard passed away at the age of 69. We talked about it some, and I told you about my relationship with uh, David and his mother Joyce over the years. But James Lockyer knows the story so intimately. He was David's lawyer, first with AIDWIC, the Association for the Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, and then uh, now it's it's called uh, Innocence Canada or Innocence Project. James, which is it? Now, yes. Uh, um. Okay. Innocence Canada. Uh, you were a very close friend to David and to his family, so condolences to you for your loss. Would, would you share with us uh, David's story? I tried to tell it, but you, you can do it so much better than I can. Uh, I, I, David has a tremendous legacy, as did his mother, Joyce. In fact, uh, you know, um, if there's a hereafter, uh, I'm sure they're up there... Uh, causing uh, the establishment problems up there, too. Um, But uh, David's uh, legacy is his strength. Uh, And uh, that he endured those 23 years uh, in prison for a crime he had absolutely nothing to do with, a horrible crime, too. Uh, And uh, his... um, Best word I can think of after he got out, because, you know, m- most people in his situation would say, uh, you know, enough of that. Let, let me try and live an ordinary life now. But that was never for David. He uh, he became a fulcrum for people who, uh, who who are wrongly convicted. They would call him and call him for help. And and uh, I can tell you that uh, David would often refer them on to me to try and help where I could as well. And uh, the the irony of today is that uh, I got the news when I walked out of Fraser Valley Institution, which is in uh, New Westminster, where I uh, where I was earlier this morning, seeing um, Narissa Cusance, who's one of two sisters, two indigenous sisters, wrongly convicted of uh, murder 30 years ago. They're both still in prison 30 years later. And I'm working on their case. Could David uh, ask me to about a year and a half ago? So I walked out of the prison after seeing Narissa this morning, uh, picked up my phone uh, when I got into the car, and and there was the awful news. 
Yeah, it's very sad. Uh, it one is. of the things that I said on the air in the about a half an hour ago when I was talking about my understanding and knowledge of and conversations with uh, with David over the years, he was never bitter. He uh, he had a he had he had a drive. The drive was to live his life, and the drive to, was to do what, exactly what you've said, and that is to help those who were in the same situation he'd been in. There was there was a mission, and it's so admirable that he had that uh, that attitude. Yeah, he had two missions: his two children and and, and that. Yeah. And and uh, you know, he he did a lot of public speaking, inspirational speaking. I, I mean, he didn't call it that, but he was an inspiration to anyone who ever watched him or heard him. And and he talked very little about his own case. Um, I shared the podium with him many times, and I would always be the one who did the talking about his case. He wouldn't. He would use the occasion to just inspire others to to live better lives, to try and ensure justice where they saw it for others. Um, uh, he, uh, he, he really was a remarkable person. You know, we, I, it, it's, uh, I, I would have said that yesterday. I'll say it today and I'll say it tomorrow. What was the most difficult part of the case for you? Well, David's case, I, I came on uh, late. Um, he uh, was... Um, released by the Supreme Court of Canada after they gave a judgment in 1992. It was an unsatisfactory judgment. They said that there was a reasonable doubt that he may have committed the crime. Um, and uh, they, they just said there was a reasonable doubt. And thereafter, David had to endure people saying that he got off a crime he committed even though he'd spent 23 years in jail for it. So he came to me and asked me to do his DNA, DNA testing to prove that the killer was not him and also to prove that the killer was the person who it really was, a man called Larry Fisher. And in July of 1997, uh, I managed to get the exhibits to England and uh, they were examined by a laboratory in England uh, who, who indeed... Uh, uh, confirmed that the the DNA from the semen on Gail Miller's nurse's uniform, she was the woman who had been killed on January 31st, 1969 in Saskatoon, that the semen uh, came not from David, but from Larry Fisher. And uh, five days later, Larry Fisher was charged and subsequently convicted of the murder, albeit 30 years too late, he got convicted uh, in 1999, 30 years after the crime. But, you know, David has spent all those years in jail for Larry Fisher's crime. And while David was doing all those years in prison, uh, Larry Fisher was carrying on committing crimes and, and, and attacking other women. And, you know, it, it, it proved the point that we always make, that if you convict the wrong person, then you haven't convicted the right person. I mean, David's case was such a good example of that um and uh you know it's it's uh it's a notorious miscarriage of justice but but david carried it so well uh you know um and his death is a is a canadian tragedy yes it is his mother joyce was a remarkable woman too she was she died just a little more than two years ago now uh, i i had the 
good fortune to visit her with David, actually, about three weeks before she died in the uh, care home that she was in where she died. And uh, she was still, she still had it, had it together enough to know who I was and, of course, know who her son was. And uh, I, I'm so glad I saw her. And, and I was good, fortunate enough to see David just six weeks ago. I, was, uh, I went and visited him at his home in Calgary. Just six weeks ago, we spent a couple of hours together in his uh, in his home, and uh, I'll cherish that, cherish that for the rest of my life. Yeah, he was meticulous. The last time I mentioned this on the air, the last time we spoke was about two years ago, yeah. and he wanted to make sure that everything was exactly correct as far as the timing was concerned, and the interview was going to get on the air, and he didn't want to let me down, and so he called me from the road three or four times. Are we still on? I want to know. I want you to know I'm in a good area. I'm ready to talk to you. The kids are going to be quiet. He was just, he was an amazing man. He really was, considering what he'd yeah. gone through. He was, I mean, you, you've got to, he's thoughtful. You know, he was thoughtful along with everything else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, when you, when you spent all that time in jail for something you didn't do, you, you, you say, why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you be bitter and angry towards the rest of the world? But that wasn't him. That wasn't him. And, and you know what? Most of the people who are wrongly convicted, in my experience, I like that. I mean, David was above and beyond, but... Uh, but uh, many of them are, are, are not unlike that, you know. Yeah, I don't know who's so. going to take over his shoes, but uh, but uh, there'll be someone to take them over, I hope. Professor Eric Ham, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're going to talk to uh, our good friend, Professor Cam, about the national economy. We had planned to do the gasoline segment and uh, the economy segments back-to-back with some calls from you. But then we heard about David. So, um, Professor Cam, it's uh, it's it's great to have you on. Let's talk about this economy of ours and where we stand. Where do we begin? Where do you want to begin about the Canadian economy, with its strengths, its weaknesses, and what we can and ought to do? Where do you want to start? Hi, Roy. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss today. Uh, I know that this is not a great day for you. Uh, and um, I'll be listening to Mr. Lockyer because my cousin, Jack Pinkowski, was his law partner for many years. Oh, really? So like you, I was wrapped up in that case. And I think Small today world, is a right? sad, sad day for Canada. Yes, indeed. Um, you ask about the economy. And uh, I guess what I'd like to talk about today is just to make sure that people keep their eyes on the prize, because I think you can really be easily misled if you listen to our prime minister and his group talking about how hard they're working to help the middle class and the working class people, because that sounds great and that can sometimes win you elections. But when you get past the veil and you dig a little, we are living in a really contradictory time. Because the more they talk about how much they are going to help people, all I can see, and in my opinion, all economics is about is what is actually happening, is rising inflation, rising interest rates, which are eventually going to have a negative downward effect on the labor market. And a little bit like your previous guest, Mr. McTagg is a very bright man. And he kind of made reference to the fact that we're stuck in a really contradictory time. You hear all of this lip service to making people's lives better, Roy, but there's only one way to make people's lives better, and that's through economic growth, 
That's through increasing people's disposable income. And we seem to be working very hard to do neither of those things right now, Roy. So we're not doing what we ought to be doing, but we are living with the reality of $2 a liter gasoline, more than $2 if you're in Vancouver. It's 233.9. I can't even say it. Dan McTagg was telling us, and people are struggling. They're suffering. We have, uh, you know, I had that email from a a listener who wrote this for the first time in her life. She is actually putting food that her family needs back on the shelf because they can't afford it. So we have that reality. Where's the, is there an exit here? I know, uh, you know, you're talking about where we are. Is there an exit for this country that our government can take and hasn't so far? There's nothing but exits our government could take. And that's really what is so frustrating and should be frustrating to Canadians, Roy, because all we're doing is they're talking about this ridiculous now, the transitioning to green energy. Wrong policy, wrong time. You see, this is the thing. We know the problems, but the solutions that we come up with don't even come close to dealing with the problems. We have to scrap the carbon tax. We have to build pipelines. We have to stop relying on other people's energy, stop relying on other people's raw materials. We are a raw material staples economy. But instead of being sellers, we've become buyers. And that's a huge mistake. And it didn't have to happen. And it doesn't have to continue. But we need the political will for someone to stand up and go enough is enough. It's time to actually make people's lives better, knowing how to use a capitalist economy, which levers to pull. And while it may not happen instantly, Those levers aren't being pulled right now. In fact, the contrary levers are being pulled. And that's what we're living in right now. As you and I have talked about, the economy is not brain surgery. You do this, you're going to do that. Every action has a reaction. Well, if you're going to choke off the supply chain, not totally our fault, but we haven't done a lot to help it. If you're going to give away money like cotton candy, you're going to have lots of demand, no supply, and nowhere to go but down. And it's really an unfortunate situation, Roy. You know, one of the other issues that we've talked about on a number of occasions, and I interviewed Senior Vice President of the company, MNP Canada, and they do an annual poll on the uh, on the uh, cost of living or the, the CPI, and uh, they found that 57, 57% now, we're almost at 60% of Canadians fear not being able to pay their bills at month's end. We were distraught, well, very disturbed when it was 48%. Now it's 57 and almost 40% fear rising interest rates will propel them toward bankruptcy. That's the MNP CPI poll. 40% fear rising interest rates will propel them toward bankruptcy. And yet we have uh, a Bank of Canada where they're saying, yep, uh, we're going to forcibly do it if, if we're required to. Clearly it's going to happen. The numbers, you're the economist, the numbers don't add up. They don't add up and they don't add up at all. And then you throw in brilliant ideas like universal dental care and pharmacare and daycare. And the question that you have to ask, I beg the people of Canada to ask is who is going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? And are we going to be able to do it before seven people out of 10 have to walk away from their house? And right now, I don't see a solution. And I feel very awkward sometimes because I do live in a position of privilege. I think I've earned my life, but that doesn't mean that I don't recognize I'm a very lucky human being. But I know that I could not afford to buy my house today, Roy. I could not afford to lease my wife's car today. And if I can't, and I don't mean to sound arrogant, if I can't, 
What do other people do? And that's why I keep preaching and preaching disposable income, raise it, put money in people's wallets. A green economy is wonderful. Carbon taxes may have their place in the future, but all you're doing today is you're putting green advocates out on the street, and I don't understand. You have a great rapport with your students, and I've talked about this because if I go online and I check what the students' response to their professor is, they love you. They they love the fact, uh, they love how you teach, they love what you teach, and they would happily, I've seen this from people saying, I'd go and take the course again because of the way you teach. And communicate. What do your students want most? What are their concerns? This is the next crew coming up. What do they want? What are their concerns? They have one concern. They do not think they're going to be as successful as their parents. They do not think they are ever going to be able to buy a house in the GTA. And they want me to tell them why they're wrong. And sadly, Dr. Cam has to look at them right now and say, you're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong. You're the first generation since Moses walked the planet that you may not do as well as your parents. And you have to look at government officials to try to make your life better. Right now, they're making it worse. And then they say, and you wonder why we have no faith in the political system. But I know exactly why they have no faith in the political system. I hope the future brings better political decisions to help with economic times, Roy. But that's all we have right now is hope because this government is letting us down decision after decision. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.